Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 209. Uh, as we become closer to the next poem in the book, tonight we will get lots of very English awkwardness uh, between Bilbo and Frodo. Um, but uh, just a quick reminder, our space modules, our very first space modules start next week. So this coming Monday will be the first day of class ever in our new space program, which is very exciting. But there is still time. Uh, if you would like to uh, get into one of our confirmed modules for December, um, we can still accommodate that. We have our, our uh, uh, Old English, Advanced Old English Reading course, our Beginning Latin course, our uh, course on Tolkien's Dwarves and Jewish Mysticism, our uh, module, our creative writing workshop, and I am absolutely blanking on our fifth module. What was the fifth one? Why am I not? Oh, of course, Father Christmas Letters. That is the fifth one. So um, those are the five that are running in December. They start next week. Uh, and as I say, you can still join. If you have a token, you can sign up for on our registration form. If you don't yet have a space token, uh, you can purchase space tokens from our site there. Um, you can join with uh, friends. You can give them away for Christmas presents. Though I suppose if you give them away for Christmas, they won't be able to join our classes that start next week now, will they? But we will have more modules in January. So that's also all good. Anyway, so that is uh, uh, one of the big exciting things that is happening uh, here this week. Um, but uh, I am, uh, I'm so excited about our space program. I've been talking about it now for about a month and a half and uh, a lot of folks have been joining. We have 49 people who are uh, uh, registered for space now. So it's, uh, it's great fun. We're uh, really excited about our first term, uh, our first month, really, our one month terms our first set of modules uh, and looking forward to continuing the process uh, in the coming months and seeing how this, uh, how this all unfolds. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, you should be able to join in January. Excellent. No, that's great. That's excellent. Um, yeah, very good. Um, <laughs> on Doctor Who Day, is it pos it's possible to give a token and use it before Christmas? Possibly. You'd have to get pretty, pretty, pretty timey-wimey about that, I think, Matt. But uh, uh, maybe, uh, maybe you could do it. All right. So uh, let us jump back into things here today. Um, uh, it is Thanksgiving week, so this is actually my only broadcast this week. The rest of the week, I've got family coming in. Um, so uh, and we do have yes, as Druid's Fire is reminding me, we have our anytime audit holiday special, our annual holiday special, and anytime uh, uh, audits running as well. Uh, so yeah, you can definitely check that out as well. Um, so yeah, and welcome to folks who are, are joining us live for the first time. Uh, seeing a few people, they see Aaron on uh, YouTube, and uh, I saw Josh the Left there on uh, on uh, uh, in our Discord channel there as well. So uh, very fun. Always great when people can join us live who have been listening asynchronously. Um, all right. Um, so, okay. Let us, um, let us 
jump back into the text. We have been looking at the giving of gifts between it's, it's a, the Christmas Day, giving of gifts, probable Christmas Day, possible Christmas Eve, uh, giving of gifts between Bilbo and Frodo. Um, well, really, the gifts are going in one direction from Bilbo to Frodo. Uh, we looked at the sword in conjunction with the reforging of Anduril uh, the week before with the giving of Sting. Last week, it was all about the mithril coat. Um, uh, and we... Uh, uh, and we were uh, focused on the giving of that particular Matham uh, last week. Um, but um, this week we are going to uh, uh, get into that final exchange. So let's jump into the text here. Very well, I will take it, said Frodo. Bilbo put it on him and fastened Sting upon the glittering belt. And then Frodo put the top of to put over the top his old weather-stained breeches, tunic, and jacket. Just a plain hobbit you look, said Bilbo. But there is more about you now than appears on the surface. Good luck to you. He turned away and looked out of the window, trying to hum a tune. I cannot thank you as I should, Bilbo, for this and for all your past kindnesses, said Frodo. Don't try, said the old hobbit, turning round and slapping him on the back. Ow, he cried. You are too hard now to slap. But there you are. Hobbits must stick together, and especially Bagginses. All I, can, all I ask in return is take as much care of yourself as you can and bring back all the news you can and any old songs and tales you can come by. I'll do my best to finish my book before you return. I should like to write the second book if I am spared. He broke off and turned to the window again, singing softly. Okay. Um... That, of course, is our transition into the next song, into the next poem. Um, okay, so first of all, that first paragraph really does sound to me like he's leaving today. This, uh, this, that paragraph is one of the primary paragraphs that make me think this is Christmas morning, not Christmas Eve night, um, because he is being suited up like he is walking out the door after this. Um, that Bilbo would have waited until this day to dress him, right? You know, to put the armor on. He doesn't just give it to him to, you know, put on in the morning when he gets dressed. Um, uh, he, uh, he puts it on and girds on the sword and everything. Like, if he weren't leaving that day, if it were Christmas Eve night, he wouldn't put the sword on, right? He'd be like, thanks, Bilbo, I'll take this back to the room and put that on first thing in the morning, right, when we get ready to go. I think I think it is first thing in the morning. Um, I, it's not a smoking gun, but I think it's pretty, uh, it's pretty suggestive. Um, and the fact that he's putting on his old weather-stained breeches, tunic, and jacket, um, uh, which I suspect not to have been the clothes that Frodo has been wearing every day. Um, you know, that he's been at Rivendell uh, for the last few months. Um, yeah, yeah. So, exactly. Cook, that's just what I was thinking. He's clearly dressing in his traveling clothes, the traveling clothes, clothes that he wore from the Shire. Um, I don't know what he's been wearing. You know, is, if he's been wearing spare clothes, or did the elves make him any clothes there at Rivendell? But he's clearly um, dressing in his traveling clothes uh, there again. Um so, um, yeah, it did mention his, he, he had new clothes, didn't it? When he, uh, when he woke up, 
right? Like, right, yeah, before the feast. Exactly. He was in a fancy suit for the feast. Right, exactly. No bricktails. I don't think he's been running naked on the grass for months, right? Um, uh, I, I, contrary to any way this has been depicted in films in the past, I think that uh, nudism is not widespread in Rivendell, so far as I can tell. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, Fort Dauntless says, did Frodo put his britches over top of his sword, that's an odd choice. Um, Bilbo did. Bilbo always had Sting down his pants. I've never sufficiently been able to picture that, I have to tell you. But it says several times. Um, it says several times in The Hobbit that he does that. Um, I... <laughs> I mean, yeah, I see lots of non-comments, non-responses to that observation. But I mean, yeah, it's uh, I appreciate your discretion and the jokes that could be made uh, about that, um, but are not currently being made about that. But yeah, and it's it's um, um, this is why, you know, sometimes when you know, weapons are taken away, his weapon isn't taken away. I mean, it's, um, it's, um, it seems to be quite small. I mean, I, this is a, Sting is a concealed weapon, right? It's a concealed weapon. You know, uh, old knives from the barrows might be big enough as swords for little people, um, according to Tom Bombadil. But um, Sting seems to have been really not a sword of any kind. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Kukavutin Miner says, also recall that a sword belt does not hold up pants like our belts do. It is perfectly feasible to put one on before pants. Don't ask how I know. <laughs> okay, no questions. No questions. You're among friends, Kukavutin Miner. Um, but, um, yeah, no, trifle. I agree. That's one of the things that I've always imagined. Uh, you know, so how long are hobbit legs and how long is Sting? I mean, jokes aside, it can't be longer than his knees or he has walking issues. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I've I because of all of the descriptions of Bilbo's sword being down his pants, I, I have I mean, Sting logically, the blade of Sting cannot be longer than like you know, the femur of a hobbit. Um, and the femur of a hobbit who is um, three feet tall uh, cannot be very long, right? Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe 10 inches? Maybe. Yeah, I mean, the blade is going to be very, is going to be very short. Um yeah, yeah. I, I Google lady, I've never imagined him wearing very particularly tight fitting pants. Uh yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> so <laughs> I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna soon steer away from this dangerous topic. But um I but yeah, yeah, I, I it's he seems to be concealing it. I could notice like just a plain hobbit you look, right? Um but there is more about you now than appears on the surface. 
he's talking about um, uh, he's talking about the armor, right? Uh, you know, Frodo was just saying that he didn't think he would look right in it, right? And then Bilbo was saying, you can wear it under your outer clothes, keep the secret with me. Um, and now he says, just a plain hobbit, you look. But it does seem that he's um, putting his breeches, tunic, and jacket over top um, of his um, uh, of his both the sword and the armor. Um, yeah. Now, Silkweskit, we were talking at the end about why they need um, why they need as much um, as much secrecy as that, right? Um, I still think it's mostly kind of Bilbo's joke, right? Um, I, 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 we, you know, we talked about this last time. Um, oh, as far as Bilbo placing, putting the shirt on him, I mean, I do think that that's, that is kind of the culmination, culminating moment. It's back to what we were talking about last time, right? The kind of tensions in this moment, right? Or maybe tension isn't quite right, actually. I was saying that last week, but I think perhaps it isn't right. What I mean is the juxtaposition. There's, there's, it's like two different scenes that are happening at once, right? On the one hand, this is a quiet, cozy, unassuming, um, just a plain hobbit kind of interchange, right? An uncle giving presents to his nephew. And uh, Bilbo's words throughout, right, are trying to, like, play down generally, right? The significance of the giving, um, you know, whereas, you know, we talked about how gift giving was designed to confer honor upon the giver, right? Um, And these great heroic uh, gift giving ceremonies and moments. And Bilbo seems keen to do the opposite of that. Right to uh, deflect uh, any honor uh, that would be coming to him from giving these gifts. Um, and we'll see him continue doing that here in this passage. But uh, while at the same time we have this homey, cozy hobbit scene, at the same time it also has every single one of the trappings of one of those great heroic gift-giving scenes when the old warrior um, takes the the precious treasures that he has accumulated through his own illustrious career, which have been given to him by great heroes of old who have died in previous generations, right, like Thorin. Um, and uh, and now he is taking in these great gifts and he is bestowing them upon, you know, the new young hero who is setting out on his quest, including in this moment, right, Bilbo putting the armor on Frodo and, you know, girding him with the sword it's an almost like a, um, you know, there's this almost ceremonial air about it. Right. And I think it is very true to that kind of moment, except Bilbo is completely resisting that. Right. But we can kind of see, it's almost like, it's almost like the, the shadows that Bilbo and Frodo throw up on the wall. Right. If you kind of imagine this, right. You know, like, we see that you know, there's the fireplace and 
the uncle and his nephew and, uh, you know, just a plain hobbit you look, right, as we're giving gifts. Um, but then, like, their shadows on the wall, you know, you have, like, the knight kneeling before his, you know, lord who is bestowing upon him rich gifts. Both are true, right? Both things are happening here. Um, I think that Tolkien does really accomplish this kind of doubling in this moment, right? You know, he gives it all of the the significance and the solemnity of the one. And Bilbo knows, right? I mean, notice that the lineage of the gifts is still commented upon, even in the context of this homey, shy scene, right? Um, when the when Bilbo offers his sword, Frodo says, "The one you used against the spiders." He knows the history of the sword, right? Um, and uh, the great deeds that were accomplished with it, you know, in in the past, right, on previous heroic journeys. Um, and similarly, Bilbo himself saying, you know, the one that Thorin gave me, right, um, as he is recalling that. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's um, I think it's really interesting how he does this. But it's notice this is not just something that's kind of done under the surface, Right. By drawing attention to the disguise, Tolkien is almost like pointing at the shadows. You see what I mean? Like Frodo feels uncomfortable. I don't think I should look right in it because, of course, how is he going to look as he's standing there and this resplendent armor of elf princes is put upon him? Um, What? Yeah, it might look like, oh, I don't know, a hero being you know, dressed in, uh, you know, armor, uh, ancient, uh, you know, armor of the ancient days um, by, you know, the great heroic Lord who is bestowing gifts upon him. Like, it might look like that, right? And he's like, I wouldn't feel right about that, right? So, no, it's okay. We'll hide it. We'll conceal it, right? Then we'll put on your old weather-stained breeches, tunic, and jacket over top, and you'll look like just a plain hobbit, right? No visible weapon, no visible armor, no glittering belt, that can be seen, right? Um, it's, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, Josh, that's interesting. <laughs> I'm not going to promise that I'm going to do a reenactment of putting on my britches with my sword belt on. I don't even have a sword belt. I do have a sting replica, a, a movie sting replica, um, uh, which was a gift to me years ago. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but <laughs> it is interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Right. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Um, Right, Aspen says he doesn't want to look like a warrior, doesn't want the others to think that he thinks he's a warrior. Frodo doesn't talk about that. All he says is, I don't think I would look right in it. Right? And we talked about how he was there echoing with, um, echoing what Bilbo said when he first got it, as he immediately comments, right? I said much the same myself. And yes, he did say much the same himself. Um, in fact, his exact words, as you may recall, were, um, but I expect I look rather absurd. I feel magnificent, but I expect I look rather absurd. Um, he too thought that he didn't look quite right in it. And what he seemed to be 
what Bilbo seemed to feel at that time in The Hobbit was he was very aware in that moment, right? He was not only receiving a gift at the hands of a retiring hero, right? He was receiving a gift, officially receiving a gift, explicitly receiving a gift at the hands of the king who has returned to his hall, the king who has been restored to his halls, to his treasure, right? After years and years of exile, Thorin was now king under the mountain again. Now they thought the dragon was still alive and were about to start running, but nevertheless, like, that was that moment, and that's how Thorin was acting. And it was in that context that he gave the gift to Bilbo. And so Bilbo, with his twin comments of, I feel magnificent, right, because he could see the shining silver steel mail that he was wearing, the mithril coat uh, that he was wearing. But what's more, he also seemed to be fully aware of the fact that he was being not just given a present, right? He was being given a reward. He was being uh, repaid, not like in the contract, right? Not just like in the contract, but it had elevated from I'm a hired burglar who's getting some pay finally, right? Uh, to this mythic moment that Bilbo himself seemed to be aware of, right? He felt magnificent, I believe, in part, not only because he thought it looked awful shiny, um, but also because he was well aware of the mythical significance of receiving this, you know, having this armor laid upon him by the hand of the king in the king's hall. Um, but um, he... The contrast, right? The reason that he felt both things. I feel magnificent, but I expect I look rather absurd. Is that he could not cease to be aware. It was like Bilbo himself could not fully place himself in that world. He was aware that he was in that world. That he was in the hall of the dwarf king, right? Um, Of the king under the mountain. And that the king under the mountain had just bestowed upon him this princely gift. Um... Cast off your old coat and put on this, says Thorin to him when he hands him the coat, right? Um, It's a transitional moment. It's a transformational moment even for Bilbo, right? Um, But the Hobbit underneath is still unchanged. Uh, And it's, you know, it's a very Took and Baggins kind of thing um, for Bilbo, right? Uh, The Baggins part of him is no doubt the one that feels thinks that he looks rather absurd. And of course, remember, as we were talking about last time, he does, um, we do get some confirmation that it's not just him. Other people think he looks rather (laughs) absurd too, right? I mean, the Elven King and Bard think, uh, don't know what to make of him, right? Uh, And they find him a study in contrasts, right? This, you know, strange little hobbit person soggy, wet, and huddling under a blanket, but dressed in this resplendent, you know, armor. Um, That, uh, again, they were very aware of the kind of contrasting elements there, right? Um, Including the, what sounds like a piece of hobbitry, you know, by the Elven King, that comment about, uh, you know, you are more worthy to wear the armor of elf princes than many that have looked more comely in it, right? Um, But, um, anyway, the point is, 
Frodo's feeling, that's the only guide I have for what Frodo is thinking when he says, I don't think I should look right in it. Um, and the fact that Bilbo affirms that by saying, oh yeah, I thought exactly the same way that you do is why I'm going back to it in the way that I am. Because um, I think it's it's probably a pretty good indication. Now, Frodo doesn't have the same token Baggins issues that we saw in Bilbo in The Hobbit. Um, you know, it's not like the same, the, you know, the two sides of him that are kind of at war uh, for so much of the book that we, as we see in The Hobbit, that we don't get that with Frodo uh, to the same extent. So it's not exactly the same. Um, and yet, again, in this context, he seems to be aware um, of the both sides, right? Of the the homey surface and the heroic backdrop, the heroic echoes of this scene. Um, and again, attention seems to be drawn to it by the concealment. And just a plain hobbit you look, but there is more about you now than appears on the surface. Notice what Bilbo has done there. But there is more about you now than appears on the surface. Good luck to you. Bilbo has effectively, by drawing attention to how Frodo feels, he has reversed it. Do you see what I mean by that? What I mean is, Bilbo, when he first got the armor, said, I feel magnificent, but I expect I look rather absurd. Right? That is, on the surface, he... He was afraid, as again, we see turned out to be true, that the inappropriateness, the disjunction between the hobbit underneath and the glittering armor on the outside was a weird contrast, right? Um, even an absurd contrast. And again, although that's not the word that the elven king or bard uses or the narrator when describing him there, we can see there's a certain issue Right with absurd, there's a, there's there's a certain kind of absurdity uh, to that image of Bilbo dressed in the elvish armor, which he is for you know the whole end uh, there of certainly of the Lonely Mountain business apparently, um, but um, but do you see what I mean by how Bilbo has reversed it? Frodo doesn't have the glittering surface, but the homey, awkward hobbit underneath, right? Bilbo was conscious of being a plain hobbit underneath, but having the glittering surface. And he expected that that looked absurd, because that glittering surface did not match what was underneath, right? Bilbo has put the glittering armor underneath and the plain hobbit on the outside. And now he says, instead of how he was, or at least what he expected, right, that people would see the glittering superficial him, right, but notice that that glittering surface, the glittering surface wasn't fooling anybody, right? He was still a plain hobbit, though he was dressed in the armor of an elf prince, right? But with Frodo, he turns it around. The glittering elf prince element, that's the underneath part. That's 
more than that's the more than what appears on the surface. Frodo looks like a plain hobbit. Whereas Bilbo looked like an elf prince but was really a plain hobbit underneath, Frodo looks like a plain hobbit but is really an elf prince <laughs> underneath, right? That's the um this the the way that he's reversed it and I think that is awesome. I think that's really cool the way that Bilbo has brought that about. Now was that why he was doing it? Does that explain the joke? His joke? I mean, apart from merely the desire to make a joke. Um, uh, I mean, I don't doubt that he would think it was funny for everybody to not know that uh, Frodo was wearing the mithril coat underneath his clothes. Um, but is that part of the reason? Because if he were wearing it on the outside, again, there's the other practical issues we discussed that he would be attracting the eye of, you know, every... Uh, potentially hostile creature who would desire the coat, as we'll see later on in the story. Um, but even apart from that, is this perhaps part of why Bilbo does that concealment? Because if he were wearing the glittering thing on the outside, that same kind of absurdity, that same kind of disjunction between what is inside and what is out, um, it's almost like Bilbo is himself kind of enacting a... Um, enacting a kind of allegory, right? Um, as if he's saying to Frodo, again, you're the elf prince underneath, right? Um, this is, there is more about you now than appears on the surface, right? Um, as if he is saying, I've always believed there's more about you than appears on the surface, right? And now I have performed, right, this outward show, which manifests. It's not just like, I'm not just giving you a gift. I am showing you how I see you, right? In my eyes, Frodo dear, you have always been a plain hobbit on the outside with a glittering mithril coat underneath, right? Uh, not appearing on the surface. Um, yeah. Um, and yes, JJ, you are right to remember that um, uh, Gandalf claps Bilbo on the back, saying, Well done, Mr. Baggins. There is always more about you than anyone expects. Um, uh, yes, yes. Um, and that's at the Lonely Mountain after he hands over the Arkenstone. Um, so yes, there being more about Bilbo than appears on the surface was what Gandalf always said about him, right? So notice, therefore, that parallel that Bilbo is establishing there. And Gandalf has been saying that from the beginning. Oh, great, JJ, you were also quoting that earlier passage. Um, that what Gandalf says to him when he de when he departs from Bilbo and the dwarves outside of Mirkwood, um, that um, you know I have told you before that he has more about him than you guess, and you will find that out before long. Um, he says to the dwarves, "Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
all the way back to chapter one, you know, with the, uh, you know, if I say he is a burglar, then a burglar he is or will be when the time comes. Gandalf always saw more in Bilbo than Bilbo suspected was there, right? There was always this, um, this perception, right, of something more on the inside, more about him than appears on the surface. And now Bilbo is turning that to Frodo, right? He is like reciprocating that in his or he's passing that along, I guess I should say. Um, and, and again, he does this outwardly. He implants something more about him than appears on the surface. And again, I don't know if that by all by itself justifies the joke, but it almost would seem to, to me, um, that, um, he has, He's not just telling Frodo, right? Um, he's not just telling Frodo there's more about you than appears on the surface, right? He first makes it visibly true. Like, he dramatizes it to Frodo and then says it to him, right? Um, so, I don't know. I mean, I think it's... I think that's... Um, uh, I think that's very interesting. Um Hang on a second. Aranas, I think I missed um, uh, the Bilbo Theoden parallel that you're alluding to. I think I missed that somewhere upstream there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, well, Mudmore, but that's the thing. Now your outside matches your inside, and now let's cover that up ASAP. But that's it. The whole covering up, that's part of the dramatization, right? Because it's like he's saying to Frodo, Frodo, like, acknowledging that when he looks at himself, he doesn't see elf prince, right? Um, What Frodo expresses is, I don't think I would look right in it. Like, Frodo is saying, I think there's going to be a crazy disjunction between how I'm going to look on the outside and how I feel underneath, right? He knows. Bilbo knows firsthand that that's exactly how Frodo's going to feel. So he takes that extra step. And that's what makes it work. Like, that's what, that's, that's what creates. Um, that's what creates that effect. Um, oh, the peril between Bilbo and Theoden outfitting from his armory. Well, the primary thing um, that I would say is that well the number one thing about it um, the number one thing I would say about it is that it is certainly it, it again emphasizes the role that Bilbo is in here right uh, he's in that he is in the he is the the gift giver, right? He is the ring giver. He is the, um, you know, the, the, the Lord on his gift seat. He's not a king, um, but he is in that Germanic kingly position, right? Now, um, Aranas, I think that you are right that it is interesting that Theoden, Theoden gives away armor that was his when he was young, which is interesting because that does make it more personal, Right. Um, I think that's worth discussing. 
but I think I'd rather wait till we get to that passage. Um, cause the exchange there, like the, the way that that's explained, I think is important. Um, but, but I, I mean, I will acknowledge that, yeah, there's a really interesting parallel there. And I think, you know, that, that certainly is another moment. Um, we will get an arming through gifts given by a king, right? Which should, when we get there, should recall us, uh, to this moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's it. Add it to the channel. Add it to the, add it to the list. Add it to the list. Um, okay. I love, um, I love Bilbo's reaction. Then what does Bilbo... So having done this really cool thing, right, which is really cool symbolically, right, really sensitive to the significance of the moment, but also sensitive to Frodo's feelings, right, and um, creating this, this way of making Frodo comfortable with it, but also of slyly, like, delivering a huge compliment to him, right? Um, again, like, it's kind of like saying, right, I've, uh, you know, uh, I think you're like an elf prince underneath, right? Uh, plain hobbit on the outside, elf prince underneath, um, with like an elf prince center, right? Like a Twinkie. Um, what's his response to that? Then what happens? Good luck to you. Oh, hang on a second. Good luck. We can't skip a sentence like good luck to you, right? Um, why is that significant? Oh, sorry, yes. Several people have been mentioning this, and I keep skipping over it, so let me come back to it. Um, the parallels between the, the giving of armor, people are thinking about biblical connections with Saul and David. Um, there's something of that there, too. For those of you who don't know the story, when, Dave, when young shepherd David shows up uh, at the army of the Israelites, it's while Goliath is doing his thing, which is his thing is defying the armies of Israel and mocking them and nobody being willing to fight against him as a champion because he's enormous and um, terrifying. And so David, this shepherd boy, shows up and says that he'll do it. And King Saul says, okay, I'll let you borrow my armor. And it's a big deal. Like he's, he is making David into the champion of the army, like he's going to put him in the royal armor, right? He is the, the champion of the entire army. Um, it's a, a, a fascinating kind of moment from Saul uh, that he's sort of willing to do that. Um, especially since, by the way, Saul is like the obvious person who really should be stepping up here, right? Uh, I mean, not only because he's the king, um, and that's why they wanted a king in the first place, the first king, um, Israel only has a king because they were like, we really want a big studly dude who can uh, lead us in battle. And that's exactly what Saul had been doing. And Saul got the job in part because he was huge. He was like head and shoulders taller than everybody else. So they're like, that strapping young lad looks just the thing. Anyway, point is, um, he was, he tries to dress David in his armor and David doesn't want it. Like, he, like, he's like, I can't. Like he doesn't fit, and it's awkward. He doesn't want to dress in the king's armor, and so he just goes out without armor. Um, so it is re reminiscent of it. In some, there are obvious differences. Bilbo is not Saul, um, uh, which is a good thing. Um, but um, 
certainly the way there are some interesting parallels with that, like the the discomfort, right? David's uh, discomfort in wearing the armor of the king. Um, it, I, I can understand why a lot of people would think of that scene um, uh, when uh, when when looking at this, but it's but it's different. Um, it's different. Um, he, yeah. In the end, I don't think I do. I would do too much with that parallel because. Yeah, the whole I mean, one of the points of it, right, is that of David's refusal of the armor. That is one of the functions that David's discomfort with the armor has within the context of that story is that it's also about David's faith um, and his reliance upon God alone and not upon the armor of the king. Um, and that element is, I think, wholly absent uh, here. I don't think that that enters into this. Um, so, at the end of the day, I don't find that parallel hugely helpful in understanding this. Um, but, uh, uh, anyway, yeah, there's, there's, to me, there's more, there's more, uh, though there are definite parallels, there are more differences than similarities, and some of the differences are interesting, but, um, anyway, um, Okay, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, J.J. Saul's reliance on his military strength is the whole reason he's not willing to go against Goliath himself. Yeah, he looks at Goliath and he's like, my odds are poor against that dude, right? Because that's he's just looking at, um, uh, J.J., as you say, his, rely, you know, his, his military strength. Um, and he's pretty sure Goliath can take him. Okay, anyway... Um, but as I say, that's not really uh, the issue of faith, which is the primary issue of that particular story, I think, anyway, um, is um, uh, really not at play here. Anyway, okay. Uh, but I did want to address it, because I, I have noticed, I keep forgetting to come back to it, but I saw several people talking about it. Um, yeah. Right. Almerea, you are certainly right that... Um, Saul was not looking for somebody with small hands. Though I guess actually that's another parallel now, isn't it? The small para- the small hands thing. But again, no, no, no. Oh, I shan't. I- I'm going to stop. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway. Um, good luck to you. That's where I was. Good luck to you. Okay. Good luck to you. Significance? Sounds like a throwaway line, right? But... In the context, this is Bilbo we're talking about. This is Bilbo. And in the context of all of this reminiscence of his earlier adventures, and not only reminiscence of them, but bestowal upon Frodo of all the mementos, now including the ring, uh, uh, Frodo has all the mementos of his previous journey. Exactly. Bilbo was the lucky number. He was, the, he was, he was luck wearer. Luck wearer was the name that he gave himself, right? His luck was his number one thing in The Hobbit, right? So when Bilbo... Yes, exactly. The, the, the idea of luck as a kind of possession that Bilbo has, right? He possessed of, uh, you know, luck in unusual quantities and all that kind of thing. Um, so in the, when in the context of all this, Bilbo says, good luck to you, right? Um, 
I'm not saying it's more than idle words in the sense that like I'm not suggesting really that there's power conveyed like Bilbo is like conferring magical luck upon him. I'm not saying anything like that, but I am saying that luck and Bilbo is I mean those two things go together, right? Um and Bilbo wishing somebody good luck just sounds different from somebody else who might just say, good luck to you. Um, and exactly, Fourth Dauntless, he is ring giver. Uh, he was luck wearer, but he is luck bestower, right? That which he had worn, he now has just bestowed upon Frodo. Um, remember, that was the kind, that was also arguably all that, those references that J.J. was very helpfully um, uh, quoting for us from The Hobbit um, about there being more to Bilbo than appears on the surface. Gandalf's multiple remarks to that effect. Um, his luck was one of the things that there was about Bilbo, right, that did not appear uh, on the surface. And he has, you know, and so him having just said, there is more about you now than appears on the surface, good luck to you, right? Um, you know, I don't think that he, again, I'm not saying that he can in some sense magically, be, you know, as if luck really is you know, like one of Frodo's ability scores and Bilbo can give him a bonus to it, right? Uh, by blessing him with it. Um, but, um, but anyway, uh, that's, uh, it still feels to me, good luck to you in this context feels like an important, uh, sentence in this way. Um, he is, what's he doing? What's he thinking? Here, that's my question here, because look what happens. Good luck to you. He turned away and looked out of the window, trying to hum a tune. What, what's happening there? Why is he turning away and looking out of the window, trying to hum a tune? Yes, Hugo, the fact that he is trying to hum a tune um, and apparently not succeeding perfectly... Right. Um, he's trying to keep his composure. Yeah, he's he's <laughs> not going to cry, not going to cry. Exactly. Yeah, he's um, and I think he's turning away so that Frodo can't see the tear in his eye. Bricktails. I absolutely agree. Um, all of those things go together. Right. His turning away and his trying to hum a tune. His looking out of the window as a like an excuse for turning away. Right. Um What is the emotion, you think, that Bilbo is experiencing right here? Now, I ask that question. It's not a fair question, as I doubt there's one simple and single emotion that Bilbo is feeling, right? Um, yeah, I agree. Glad the Inspirer that uh, Bilbo has... Uh, after all Bilbo has learned since Frodo arrived, his emotions are very complex. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Aranas, yeah, I mean, so is he worried about Frodo? Yes, clearly. Concerned about the danger that Frodo is going into. Remember, he's been one of the people who has been trying to convince Frodo, you know, to cheer Frodo up, right? To keep Frodo from thinking of this mission that he is going on. 
um, this quest that he is setting out on, uh, like that it's not a, a suicide mission, right? But is he concerned about him? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely he's concerned about him. Um, pity, sympathy, yeah, sure. Gratefulness, worry, fear, yes, yes. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, does he feel guilty for dooming Frodo to a dangerous quest? Blood, maybe. Maybe he does. Maybe he does. Um, but I also think, as Arnos was saying at the start of that there, um, perhaps some regret about his not... I mean, it's a bit of a melancholy thing, giving away your old mementos. I mean, we talked about that, how he seemed to have his stuff packed as if ready to go, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and that it's hard to be left behind. For Thoughtless, I suspect a certain amount of pride as well, right? I mean, there would be a certain... I mean, that alone, um, how just seeing... Not only seeing Frodo as he is standing there, right? But knowing the significance of this moment, right? Like, just knowing, like, my nephew Frodo is stepping up to be the ring bearer and it is setting off on the quest to save the world. Like, that's kind of emotional, right? This is, there would be a certain amount of pride there, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Frodo has grown up a lot since he last saw him. Lady Licata, you'll recall, he's grown up a lot since he last saw himself, right? He has that conversation with his reflection in the mirror when he gets out of bed um, back in chapter one. Uh, it's, you know, saying that his eyes have seen a few things since they last peeped out of, out of a looking glass, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so certainly since Bilbo saw him, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and Matt, I think you're right. You know, he says, I think the one level of complexity has to do with Bilbo's wish. Frodo has not demonstrated a lot of luck and won't as the quest goes on. Um, uh, yeah, he does not seem to be uh, gifted with an unusual share of luck, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Blah, that's a really interesting point, too, that it seems like uh, Frodo still doesn't understand what the ring is going to do to him nearly as well as Bilbo does. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's also... It's possible from where he's sitting and from the experience that he has had and the new perspective he's gained since Frodo's been there, right? Just over the last... Well, I was going to say the last few days... But of course, the council was months ago now. Um, uh, but anyway, in the you know in those few days, right between the Hall of Fire uh, the night before and the Council of Elrond the next day, um, Bilbo has come to understand things much better. And I agree. I suspect, no, not suspect. Clearly, he is the only one. Bilbo is the only one 
who can have any idea what it's going to mean to Frodo to throw the ring in the fire, right? Everybody else might be thinking, oh yeah, it's going to be pretty dangerous, right? They'll probably get killed on the way, right? Um, But only Bilbo can really appreciate, okay, um, traveling across Middle-earth despite the searching, you know, um, you know, the, the, the spies, the enemy is going to try to send to track you down. Dis, uh, after you've s- somehow infiltrated Mordor itself, right. And made your way all the way through the stronghold of the enemy to the very heart of his power in the midst of his ancient realm. That's the easy part, right? The hard part is going to be chucking that thing into the fire when you get there. And only Bilbo can have any glimmer of what that's really going to be like, of how hard that's really going to be. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, is that an, I mean, is he, th- you know, think he's going to be, and which of course, Kurtzum is, yeah, it is going to be the impossible part, right? We know, spoilers, um, that Frodo will fail at doing that. I don't think Bilbo knows that, right? But Bilbo knows that is, even if Frodo survives against all the odds, getting to that point, um, how hard that is going to be. Um, yeah, Lady Lakata, exactly. Bilbo only had to give the ring away. Um, and at least he was giving it to somebody that he knew would take care of it, right? Very different, as he himself, as Gandalf admitted. Um, that Bilbo would never have just thrown it away. Um, even with help, the most he could do was give it over to somebody else, give it into someone else's keeping. Um, Rachel, I, I, is there both nostalgia and some regret? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think it's a very complicated... Um, I think it's a very complicated moment. Right, emotional moment for Bilbo, which seems to almost um, uh, almost overwhelm him. Well, overwhelm him to the point of actually showing emotion on the outside, right? Which uh, he is not comfortable with, right? So he turns away and he looks out the window, trying to hum a tune. Uh, I love the understatement of that phrase, trying to hum a tune, right? Um the way that Tolkien is able to convey Bilbo's emotion, Bilbo's emotion, his desire to hide his emotion, and his lack of perfect success in hiding that emotion, just by using the verb trying there, right, I think is really is really wonderful. And then Frodo goes and makes it all worse. I cannot thank you as I should, Bilbo, for this and for all your past kindnesses. Don't try, said the old hobbit. Um, I cannot thank you as I should, Bilbo, for this and for all your past kindnesses. Um, Frodo, this is, by the way, another thing that I think is, it's not as big a one as the first paragraph, but it's another reason that I rather suspect this is Christmas morning um, and not Christmas Eve night, um, because Frodo is talking like, this is their last farewell, which could conceivably have happened on Christmas Eve night. So as I say, it's it's, it's not proof. Um, But again, it feels like the morning of departure, the way that he's talking there. Um, uh, Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and yeah, Silk Weskett, you're exactly right. Frodo is breaking form here. He is breaking form and thanking Bilbo out loud with genuine, unhobbitry filled emotion, right? Uh, you know, he's, he, he, he just baldly expresses his feelings here, right? I mean, that's um, unusual, right? Unusual. Um, and Blood the Inspire, I think you're completely correct about that. Um, that he says, he wonders if that's Frodo's way of telling Bilbo, also, I don't blame you for this. All I feel is gratitude, right? Um, yes, I'm not, don't think, as I'm leaving, don't think that I'm blaming you. Because Bilbo might think that. Bilbo might feel guilty, Right? He sent Fro- he saddled Frodo with this, right? It's his fault. It's his fault that Frodo is having to do this. If he, Bilbo, had taken the ring away with him, as he would have done if it hadn't been for that meddlesome wizard, right, um, then he'd still be the ring bearer. And Frodo would never have been involved. Frodo would never, there's no way Frodo would ever be at the council, right? Um, but he... Frodo merely expresses not just his gratitude, but his inability to express his gratitude. He expresses the fact that his gratitude is beyond expression uh, to Bilbo. And I I think that that's that that's very, very touching. Um, And yes, Bilbo responds with hobbitry. Don't try. And he slaps him, right? Slaps him on the back. Just like, of course, you will remember in that passage that J.J. quoted, that's just what Gandalf does to Bilbo when um, uh, he tells him, well done, and you, uh, uh, you know, there's more about you than, uh, than appears on the surface. Um, um, yes, Bilbo is trying to diffuse the emotional moment, right? Um, yeah, have we ever had an example of Frodo directing hobbitry at Bilbo? I don't think so. I can't think of any. I can't think of any. Merry and Pippin, yes. Even Merry saying things like, "Well, he hasn't said this yet, but he will say, bless the old Hobbit.'" Right? Even that has a kind of an air of. Uh, of uh, hobbitry to it, and certainly the way that they talk about Bilbo and his uh, uh, getting a look at his book and that kind of thing. Um, tone of hobbitry all the way through. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Kurtzimus, I agree that Frodo is the most direct and genuine hobbit. Um, uh I'm not sure he necessarily needs to join the Aragorn Hobbitry support group, uh, the like uh, uh, to join Aragorn in the remedial Hobbitry class. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, I think he's a little beyond Aragorn, but not all that much. Frodo is kind of a straight man uh, compared to the other hobbits, um, but he does do some things, like for instance when he rolls Pippin out of his blankets that morning, right? That's, you know, 
you know, and then, you know, the oldest first or quickest first, you'll be last either way, you know, Mr. Peregrine, right? Like that, uh, you know, that's, um, that's also, he does do it. Frodo does do it. Um, but, um, uh, but directed to, to Bilbo, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I don't think there's an actual rebuke here. I don't think that's the tone at all. Um, including even with Hugo, the exclamation point, um, uh, on don't try there. Um, no, 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 no. I, I don't, I don't think he's rebuking him. I think he's, he's accepting it. Even the slapping him on the back, um, that even that I think is a gesture of acceptance. Um, of what Frodo has said. He's reciprocating it, except through hobbitry, right? Bill, Frodo has just expressed verbally this very touching gratitude, and Bilbo responds affectionately, but with affection appropriately channeled through um, affectionate, yeah, Channeled through violence, well, channeled through uh, 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 hobbitry. Um, yeah, a sign of camaraderie. That's really what the slap in the back uh, is. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then he teases him again. Ow, he cried. You're too hard now to slap. Right? Um, that's... Uh, he's making jokes, right? He's making jokes. But of course, notice also the effect of this joke. What is the, like, what does that joke accomplish? Another reminder of how there's more about him now than appears on the surface, right? Um, Yeah, demonstrating the effectiveness of Mithril. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, Yeah. Is bearing the ring growing Frodo out of hobbitry? Not yet, but it will. Um, uh, Just as he wasn't making many jokes either when he had the, uh, you know, the shard of the Morgul blade in his shoulder. um, uh, He's not going to be making many jokes later um, after he's his experience with the ring. Um, But... um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but again, I love the ow, you are too hard now to slap. Um, he's, again, he's diffusing the very emotional moment, his emotional moment, and then immediately followed by Frodo's emotional moment. He's diffusing that with humor, but also, again, he's, he's doubling down on the there's more about you now than appears on the surface thing, um, which, uh, uh, which I really like. Um, but there you are. Hobbits must stick together, and especially Bagginses. All I ask in return is, take as much care of yourself as you can, and bring back all the news you can, and any old songs and tales you can come by. I'll do my best to finish my book before you return. I should like to write the second book, if I am spared. The second book. Your story. Right? Um... Why especially Bagginses? 
Lady Lakata, this is a great question. Are they technically the last of the Bagginses, Valori? No, there are other Bagginses. Um, they, in turn, Bilbo for a long time and Frodo for a shorter time, were apparently the head of the Baggins family. Um, this is why Frodo speaks as he does about Lotho when he gets back. I mean, when Frodo will speak of um, the family dealing with him, that's what he's talking about. Um, he's, um, and I think also that is what is implied um, in the statement near the beginning of Book One, Chapter Two, um, when the narrator tells us that Bilbo found Frodo, sorry, found being the Mister Baggins of Bag End rather pleasant. Um, being the Mister Baggins of Bag End doesn't just mean that he's in Bilbo's place as far as you know the furniture and the local greengrocer is concerned, right? Um, he's, um, uh, he's the Mr. Baggins. He's the head of his family. Um, now, the Baggins family is not as prominent nor as wealthy as the Took family, as we learned back in The Hobbit, right? Um, but there are definitely other Bagginses. The Sackville Bagginses are, of course, the unfortunate evidence uh, of that. Um, but you can see in the genealogies there are plenty of other Bagginses kicking around, um, including, by the way, the one that Frodo had to physically kick out of. Uh, I know he's a Proudfoot, Sancho Proudfoot, but if you look at the genealogies, Sancho Proudfoot is in Bilbo's family as well. Um, and in fact, if you look carefully at the genealogy, you will see, as I've said this before, Sancho Proudfoot arguably has a better genealogical claim to be Bilbo's heir than Frodo does. Um, but Frodo has been adopted by Bilbo and thus is unquestionably Bilbo's heir. But um, if it were not for the adoption and it were just down to who is his next nearest of kin in that generation, um, Sancho, you know, a cunning... Um, uh, if he hired the right solicitor, Sancho Proudfoot could make a claim. Um, would it be an oddity for him to be the family head at 33, Good Jones? Well, um... Uh, certainly, uh, it is according to Lotho and uh, to Otho and Lobelia, right? Um, who um, give him short shrift, right? But um, but I don't I don't think so. It doesn't seem to be just a, a geriatocracy kind of situation, right? It doesn't seem to be just like the elder of the family. Um, you know, the eldest member of the family is the head of the family. Um, it's um, it's not quite that. It seems to be more... There are different branches of the family, and Bilbo is the head of the primary branch of the Baggins family. Um, so, anyway. Um, but... Uh, yeah, as Amareya says, it's not weird since they lost a generation with the death of Frodo's parents. It's true, but again, I mean, like that, that explains the gap. Um, but at the same time, it's not by his lineage as the son of Drogo Baggins. Um, Frodo is not going to become the head of the Bagginses because he's Drogo's son. He's going to be the head of the Bagginses because he is adopted as Bilbo's heir. And again, that's what it means. Bilbo can pass it down. Like being the heir of Bilbo, of being the Mister Baggins of Bag End means more than just I have the, you know, property deed to Bag End. 
Um, but anyway, it's complicated, and Tolkien didn't spell out all the rules about this. But um, uh, but it certainly um, seems to be kind of involved. But anyway, getting off the subject, why especially Baggins? So. Uh, Here's how I read especially Bagginses. I don't believe that Bilbo is actually saying that um, it is more important for members of the Baggins family to stick together than it is for it, the members of any other Hobbit family to stick together, and I can prove it. Like, I don't think he's making an objective claim about that. I think that... Um, you know, he starts off with this kind of general deflection. He's deflecting still. Right. Um, You know, don't try. Ow, you are too hard to slap. But there you are. Hobbits must stick together. Right. Um, It's a deflection. Right. It's not, you know. I've just given you these amazing gifts and I've, you know, this is like the culmination of all of the love and generosity I have heaped upon you for decades and decades. But like, it's nothing. Don't make a big deal about it. Right. We shouldn't be emotional about that, right? Um, so instead, I'm going to make it a platitude, right? Um, hobbits must stick together. That's that's why. I gave you these presents and showed you all this generosity and took you in and made you my heir and um, taught you everything you knew and gave you everything you have uh, because, you know, hobbits must stick together, right? But then he adds, and especially Bagginses. And although it isn't true that they're the only two Bagginses, um, they are their own family, right? Their own little branch of the Bagginses. Um, Hobbits must stick together, and especially Bagginses, acknowledging the bond between the two of them, right? Um, That they are family, not only in the sense that they both have the last name Baggins, um, but in the much deeper sense that led Bilbo to adopt Frodo as his heir, to take him in as if he were his own son. Um, so he is both deflecting with the general statement, right, deflecting the emotion and significance of the moment, but he's also jokingly acknowledging it, right? Um, we Bagginses, you and I, our family, we're all that we have, right? We're all that we have a family. I mean, it's us and the Sackville Bagginses, so <clears throat> it's just us, right? Um, uh, so he does, you know, he's, he's, he is acknowledging it, acknowledging that tie, acknowledging that bond. Um, it's a very roundabout way, I think, of him acknowledging the closeness of the bond between them, that sort of father-son-ish bond between them. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, And it's up to Bagginses to save the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, The the link between them, the parallels between them in their quests, too, in some ways. Yeah. all I can ask in return, all I ask in return is take as much care of yourself as you can, which is both funny, right? Because that's it's a 
he does not finish that sentence in the way that it sounds like he's going to finish it, right? Uh, like he's going to ask for something in return. But all he's going to ask in return is that you take as much care of yourself as you can. So it's it's still speaking lightly, but of course it also expresses. That's the statement where Bilbo comes closest to baldly expressing emotion, right? I am concerned about you. Just promise me that you'll take care of yourself and come back, right? Come back. Um, survive and come back. But again, notice how he hedges that about and deflects, right? The emotion of that. Um, he doesn't just say, come back. He says, bring back all the news that you can and any old songs and tales you can come by, right? Um, as if what's most important is Bilbo's little scholarly ho- hobby, right? Since I'm, you know, full-time hobbit lore master these days, right? Um, you can do some of my field research for me while you're out. Um, a very clear deflection, right? Bring back all the news you can. Um, yeah, that's what, that's what matters, Bilbo, right? Tell me the, the, the doings, uh, you know, in, uh, in the foreign parts that you see. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and any old songs and tales you can come by. This is all. This is all part of. Uh, uh, even your quest, right, is all in service to uh, my own literary career, right? Um, I'll do my best to finish my book before you return. Um, I should write. Like to write the second book if I'm spared. Um, But then he breaks off again. He broke off and turned to the window again, singing softly. Um, He can't finish that paragraph. I don't know what he was going to say in the rest of his paragraph. He wasn't done, right? But he breaks off at If I Am Spared and looks out the window again, presumably to hide more tears, right? And this time... He doesn't hum, but he sings, singing softly. So next week, yes, next week, next week, when we um, uh, look at the song, we have to remember this context, right? That the song that he sings, the poem that he reads, that he recites, right, that he sings, is like the humming that he was attempting to do before, right? Like the tune he was trying to hum earlier. He is deflecting emotion. He is coping with the strong and complicated feelings that he's having. And we should get a much clearer insight into what's going on in Bilbo's mind and heart when we read the song that he's going to be singing, right? Um, so let's, um, we'll stop here because we'll look at the song next week. We'll see. Maybe we can do the whole poem next week, but it's six stanzas long, so I'm not sure if we'll get through the whole poem in one week. 
<laughs> but we'll we'll have a go. We'll have a go. And um, uh, the the one thing that is. Um, yeah, sorry, uh, Astro Gypsy. It is. Uh, I sit beside the fire and think. Is the poem that he's going to be? Uh, I even like. I even have it on a slide. Two slides, in fact. Uh, but that doesn't count as covering more than one slide. That's just a sneak peek. Um, so uh, we're totally. The good news is, like, are we going to to get the departure from Rivendell before Christmas? I don't think we will um, because we only have three classes before Christmas left because um, I'm going to be away the week before Christmas. So uh, next week will be the 20th of November and then we'll have the 7th and the 14th and I'll be around for those. Um, so yeah, we won't have three weeks. So I'm hoping to finish the poem before Christmas. But here's the thing. We're already on Christmas Day, right? We're already caught up to Christmas. So uh, we did get to Christmas Day in the book before we got to Christmas Day uh, in, uh, uh, you know, in our discussion. So there we go. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's cheating, JJ. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. It is a little bit, but um, <laughs> departure before Groundhog Day. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. All right. Thanks, everybody. Um, it's field trip time, um, but that will, that, will be, that, will be, that will do it for our, our text discussion here this evening, and we shall get ready for field trip time. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, good night to those of you who can't stay with us for the field trip, and I will see everybody else next week, and we'll do our field trip. How are you this evening, Valori? I'm doing great. I mean, like, Mithril, nothing, you know. Mithril might get rid of arrows, but hobbit demeanors can deflect everything. <laughs> yeah. You, th you think that the Mithril coat has nothing on, uh, uh, you know, um, Bilbo's uh, English deflection, very English deflection of emotion? Yeah, yeah. They even did yeah. the standard tele-joke after you uh, revealed that you're, you're, uh, you have emotions thing. You're like, nope, nope, let's, let's make a joke out of it. Yeah. La la yeah. la. Nothing happening here. It's 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 the uh, it's the verbal equivalent of the of the slugging the back after a hug thing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Oh, uh, Bricktails. Uh, in the nature of Middle Earth. What did I say? I think I said eighteen or something crazy like that. Bricktails, through chapter eighteen for next week because we don't have class tomorrow because wow. um, I'm gonna I got family here. I'm picking up my son at the airport. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Okay. Alright. So, oh yeah, I don't have to run out anywhere because I still have my milestone. Still at Gwingris, but let's meet at Gwingris because that's still the last milestone we have found in right. Eregi in there. Gwingris at as... Yeah, more people are gonna meet us there in a minute. So we'll see. All okay. Right. Looks like we're good. We just uh, balance this out a little. Cool.
Okay. All right, let us head south. We're headed down to towards Echadaregian. We got to the um, ruin of, I've already forgotten the name of it. What was it called? Uh, Pembar. That was it. That was where we got last time. Pembar. Pembar. Like Pemberley? And not quite like Pemberley, but um, I think the. Um, wondering if the roots are similar yeah um the fishing was not as good <laughs> at pembar for sure because the river is apparently dried up um because i guess that's what rivers do around here oh oh mr gardener this that are exactly yeah yeah that are uh the watcher in the water has a whole bunch of friends and relations who are damming up all the other streams as well one was bad enough. Yeah, I agree. I do like all the holly trees around here, though. I, I've, I've only yes. seen about two holly trees in my life, and it is really interesting to see just how big they can get from the little pricker bushes we usually see around North America. Yes, yes. Okay, and I think we're heading south because that was the junction, right? Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yes. So hang on a second. This is about where we got last time, and we can see the ruin from here, right? Yeah. Um, okay, let's ride out of the trees here. Might as well. Oh, yeah. Okay. Multiple ruins. So instead of just riding straight across, which, by the way, as I recall, the road pretty much gives out right here anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah, it kind of peters out. Yeah, end of the road. Um, the terrain yeah, here is kind of interesting because we get all these gullies, right? Again, we have all these multiple what look like dried up riverbeds. Glacier streams, you think? Maybe. Maybe. Um, and we get all these big rocks around which are what um you know this this the the stones of course are prominent and important we haven't gotten to the scene yet later in this chapter when yeah. Lovelace is going to talk about how he can't talk to the rocks but hang on a second oh right that's a separate ruin down there this is our little local ruin, which is our immediate uh, destination. Mm -hmm. The big rocks do imply there was something like a, a big, uh, big ice avalanche from the mountains that carried all these rocks down here. Right, possibly so. We've got a milestone in here, don't we? Is there a milestone on this one? I don't know if it's here. No? I do know it's a stable point. It's here. Oh, is it? Oh, over here it's oh, over there, Perfect. right, yeah. Right, the fire. Snake would have bit me. Missed it. Okay. There we go. Okay, now we can come straight here. 
for a week or two. Okay, so... Oh, look at the cedar trees making up the ceiling. <laughs> yeah. And a big old holly next door there. Mm-hmm. So this is a a strange little isolated dome in the middle of nowhere. Uh, yeah. What do we think was the point of this? It's too small for a party house. I'm not saying you couldn't have a perfectly respectable party in here if you were so inclined. I'm just saying that... Hmm. Is this the one that has the more buildings next to it that all the thieves are in? Or is that further down? I think that's further down. I, I, I wanted to look around just to see that I think that's Pembar that we're looking at there across yeah. the way there's yeah that is right so that's where we were last week I don't think there's anything else around here not really it makes me wonder if this is just sort of a, a horse watering station yeah maybe like a place where you stop for a picnic lunch on the way up to or non picnic lunch right where you stop for um, I mean, it was just like a little hostelry of some sort, you know, a little... Well, there's definitely remains of a stable here. It would certainly look like it. I mean, just because it's being used for a stable now doesn't necessarily prove that it always was, but it certainly is suggestive. Well, it looks a lot like the stables that we've seen in uh, Eredluin. Yeah, it does. It does. So yes, this seems to be some kind of um, uh, waypost, way station on the way. You know, this is like the rest stop uh, of the, the... Ooh. What's that ruin up on the hill? Mm. Which, from where I'm currently standing, looks like it's floating in midair, but... Yeah, I don't know. What is that? Where am I facing? That's up above? It's up near Holland Ridge? Or am I we looking at like Kodak Bragnell or something like that? We'll go check it out. There's only one way to get there. Is it an instance or is it on No, nope. It's a special jumping puzzle. Uh-huh. It gets you a title called the Rich Racer and we got it last weekend. Okay. No wonder I've never been there. Yeah, guess who sucks at jumping puzzles? Yeah, I don't do jumping puzzles. No. I don't do platformers. I, I, I started I started Lord of the Rings Online because I was pretty sure there weren't going to be any platform jumps. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Thankfully, they leave those in the other game. Okay, for the most yeah. Part. Yeah. It's, it's not yeah. too difficult. It's just better not to do it on a war speed. Yeah, it's just I'm, I'm suddenly having <laughs> traumatic to flashbacks to the nineties. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like all the times I plunged to my death playing Super Mario Brothers and that kind of thing. Yes. Plunged nothing. I panicked and yanked the system out of the wall. <laughs> yes, yes. Anyway, yeah. No, I don't. I don't really do jumping challenges so much. Um, but um, I can tell you, it's kind of like that uh, little ramp up to the speaking platform in Gwingra, so it pretty much looks like that. Hmm, Just a okay. little bit bigger. Right. Is All it, right. um... Has it always been there? Yeah. Yeah. I've just never noticed it before. 
Yeah, maybe right. we can make it some kind of challenge for a myth mood or something at some point. Right. Okay. Yeah, maybe it's... Get up there first. <laughs> I think you haven't seen it before because you're using better graphics than the time you've been here before. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's true yeah, on my yeah. old machine. I was using pretty low graphics when I was streaming. Yeah, and um, the draw distance in the game is longer. But anyway. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's interesting. But, so, taking that in from here, uh, therefore, and not climbing and leaping about uh, to get to it, um, it would appear to be some kind of possibly watchtower, if not watchtower, then, um, like, if not actually lookout post, then scenic overlook, right? Mm-hmm. That's like a place you go perfect. for a lovely view yes. if you're one of the Noldor of the Second Age? But this entire place looks like it was made for a lovely view. I mean, that's why there's so few buildings and so much just open air and grass. You can tell it's just having a place out of the rain was something that was just considered, you know, trivial. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were already um, suspecting at least I was suspecting that Gwingris was built on the site that it was because of its view, right? Because it was a lovely view of the canyons all around, right? It was a, a very striking overlook point there. Yep. Um, and over here we have mountains, beautiful mountains. Picture postcard place. Yeah. Well, except there's all these... So the boulders, mm -hmm. all the boulders, they would yeah. have been here. Well, we know they were here because Legolas is going to tell us that they were here. Mm -hmm. So these aren't newer. Yeah, but given how round they are, they, they look like they've been here for several millennia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, clearly not very recent, but... They look like the remnants of an ice age or something. Like, right, possibly. We're talking kind of back to sort of Melkor grade destruction of nature. I, I guess what I'm struggling with is that I find Eregian much less beautiful than I find many other areas of Middle Earth in the game. And, like, all these weirdo, scraggly boulders sitting all over the place is one of the things that makes it look interesting, right? Um, mm -hmm. Quirky, but not exactly gorgeous. But, and I'm trying to think also, do we think this was more densely wooded back in the day? Would See, there have been of, more yeah. trees? Yeah, we do see hints here and there there not being as many trees as they used to be. Yeah, I'm wondering. I'm looking at the map here. I'm going out. I mean, I so, like the rocks, but I like rocks. Right. So we know that this area down here that is like north of the River Guathlo, um, yeah. you know, by Tharbat, all of this area was deforested by the Numenorians. And this is what, of course... Elrond is referring exactly. Arnas says, "Ask Elrond's squirrels." That's exactly it. Um, 
it was the, that area down there, Enidwyth, uh, Dunland, uh, and the area to the northwest of Enidwyth, um, that Elrond was referring to when talking about the squirrels who could run from tree to tree, uh, from, you know, all the way from uh, the what from like the Shire down to Dunland basically mm -hmm. but um yeah. we're of course a little further east than that probably the forests would have extended down here too and it's conceivable of course that the Numenorians could have deforested here also if they could still use the river like the Bruinen to take the mm -hmm. logs down to um and this is the Glanduin that we're close to, right? To go back to this map. So the, the Glanduin is down there by Mirabel, right? That's what we're going to... Mm -hmm. The river that we'll find down on the southwestern corner of Eregion here. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the Glanduin. Okay. Yeah. So it is possible that they could have, you know, shipped all the... Uh, uh, you know, floated the logs down the Glanduin and collected them in the Guathlo and brought them down there to their ship-making industry down there. Mm -hmm. I don't know what kind of uh, things Ilex is good for. Yeah. Not sure what kind of wood you get from it. I'm not sure... Do we think the trees might have been different, too? I mean, there's holly, of course. Well, we've got to have the holly. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, like, these cedars here? Possibly. Okay, Ilex is Latin for holly. Okay, there we go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ilex is holly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had to look that up when we came out here, because I'm going, what the heck is that? What? Oh, because Ilex branches are, the, are what you're collecting when you're... Mm -hmm. uh, the if you're a forester, yeah, if you're a forester, collect ilex branch. That's the wood that's lying around here. Right. And I could, right. I'd never heard of that before, so I googled it immediately. Right. Right. And these other deciduous guys look like cedar or juniper or. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because Tomas, you're right. I mean. A deforested land will regrow forest, um, and There's not a lot just of animals here, though. And not just if it's empty of people, Tomas. Even if it's got people in it who just stop cutting the forest down, I mean, like that's what I live in. I live surrounded by new growth forest, new growth that is within the last two hundred years, um, mm -hmm. because if you see like pictures, drawings, and stuff of the towns around where I live in southern New Hampshire, you can see that in the late 18th century they had deforested the whole joint because it was all farmland um, as much as they could make it back then. As, you know, as much as they could grow anything amidst the granite. Um, uh, plowing this country is no joke. But um, but the for they cut down all the forests. Um, this was like open land uh, in, you know, like when Paul Revere rode from Boston to New Hampshire, he did not ride through any for many forests along the way. Uh, you know, he was riding through open farmland and from town to town. Um, <laughs> but nowadays it's completely uh, 
it's, you know, it's, it's almost completely forested now. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, it's certainly the 200 years that have passed since this land used to be farmed, um, uh, around where I live has been more than enough for forest to grow all over everywhere. Now, it's it's young forest. Um, you know, this is not, uh, uh, you know, like Sherwood Forest or the Black Forest or something like that. Um, <laughs> but it's still densely covered with trees. And yet, Tomas, there still is this sense. And here I think we have to rely not just upon like what we know about how trees actually act, but on Tolkien's sense of the sort of spiritual fitness of things, right? Like like the desolation of Smaug. Um, there is a sense in which, I think, the deforestation of, you know, southern um, Eregi- or southern um, Eriador like left a mark basically, like the greed of the Numenorians left a mark on the land and the forests never grew back. Um, mm-hmm. That seems to me uh, part of the kind of the concept. There's more than enough time and Tolkien would have known that 3,000 years, more than enough time even for old growth forests to grow back, right? Uh, yeah. In that amount of time. Um, but um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Arden Cran says, if I recall, uh, Scotland has had difficulty reforesting due to rampant herbivore populations in the absence yeah, was, of natural predators to keep them in check. Right. I was going to say, we've got a lot of these uh, these infiltration of rather fell creatures all over the place. In fact, it's a deed out here because there's so many nasty critters out here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the tuskers here could be an issue or if like the men came in and started keeping cattle on the land. Right, right, but yeah, we don't see we don't see much in the way of that, and it's true that a lot of what we're seeing these boars right all around our rock here, um, and but but also we see lots of wolves, uh, but the wolves are probably not native. Uh, remember, we were worried about we were worried at the council, like the scouts were concerned about wolves moving in right in the Vale of Anduin, like invading the Vale of Anduin, like a like an invading force there. Um, yeah, and we'll, of course, run into that in the story before too long. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, I think that this kind of dome that we're seeing here is um, seems to me like the standard. Like if there's one structure that typifies the Noldor of Eregion, it would be this kind of, call it a mega gazebo, right? This kind of big round, uh, you know, I guess it's really a, uh, what's, the, what's the word for it? It's a... Pleasure dome. Yeah, no, there's a, another word I can't think of. Um, round structure oh well rotunda? I can't think of. rotunda that's it rotunda that's that's the word Huzzah. I was thinking of yes rotunda um, 
this kind of yes, this kind of rotunda um, uh, structure seems to be what they kind of liked best. Um, even putting them like up in isolation, as we saw in Gwingaris, like in the middle of their little town, you know, they have these little kind of separate rotundi uh, 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 sprinkled around. I agree that. In it though, what like what is the purpose if there's so many holes? I mean, is it are you to just want to have a ball to so, lean against? So while you look at the stars, well, I guess I mean, I, if there were glass in the dome over top, then you could still see the stars and uh, have sunlight come in, um, but be protected from. The, so it'd still be shelter, right? While yeah. being also having that open air look. Um, but um, now I agree somebody uh, shutters or curtains or something maybe but see Amethorn was saying clearly this tree with like the branches sticking through the windows wasn't here and there's no question about that right like this tree over here this big tree which has grown up right next to the wall and is sticking its branches through all the windows and stuff like this was obviously not here when this place was yeah. built. However, if we go back to t'other side over here, this is really interesting because I suspect that this was here. This of the boulder. Yeah, so we've got this big boulder, right? Just like all the other funny little quirky round boulders that we see everywhere else, right? Yeah. Um, and then we've got this holly tree which is growing out of the cracks of this boulder yeah and it is all growing in through the windows too but I think that this was deliberately cultivated Um, I don't know whether they planted it there and were like wouldn't it be cool if it grows or if they noticed a holly shoot growing in the boulder and were like that's awesome let's encourage this but they clearly built this rotunda right next to this boulder Right, obviously that yeah. boulder is original. I don't think they transplanted that boulder. The boulder certainly didn't grow up since the building was there, and um, I don't think they transplanted it and everything. So I think they clearly built it, snuggled up next to this boulder, which is kind of interesting in itself. Right, they could have found mm-hmm. an open place, but they didn't. Not only is it snuggled up very tight against that one boulder, we've got these other two over here. Right, so they clearly enjoyed the boulders. Right. And, and here's another one over here. They're like, okay, here's this spot. There's barely room for a rotunda in the middle of all of this um, boulder action here. But, uh, but it's perfect. Let's do it. I mean, could they have built it like over here where there was much more room? Yeah, sure. Look, I mean, they built the rotunda right here. Oh, you got all kinds of room, right? No boulders yeah. underfoot here. But no, no, we decide not to do that. We're going to build it right in the midst of those boulders. So they clearly dug it. Right, they like the boulder. The road was there to begin with. Well, maybe, but again, I mean, you got to think that they probably the. I mean, yeah, the road probably did come first, but even okay, even if you assume the road came first, okay, we'll just go a hundred yards up this way, and look at this big old rotunda spot right here. You could put a nice (laughs) big rotunda right in this little spot with no boulders. So so they made like little elven sort of basic, naturally zen garden. Kind of something like. yeah i mean they clearly wanted it to be like the the proximity to the boulders was clearly a goal here 
mm-hmm. right? Um, especially this one that they built. I mean, it would have been hard to even even to lay some of these stones. Look how tight that is, right? They would actually have had to cut this side of the boulder. Very likely, yeah. to to to. I mean, they 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 plumbed this side of the boulder so that they could build the wall right up against it. Um, and then they, I, I, it's possible that this, I, this holly tree has just grown up completely since then. I mean, there's been plenty of time and everything, but there's something about it. They could have grown up after they abandoned it. Yeah. It's very, it's, it's certainly possible. I mean, there's no reason to think there's not been enough time, obviously, uh, 5,000 years we're talking about, but, um, but I kind of, I kind of like it. Um, I, I, I kind of think that they, I like to think that they encouraged it, that they, this holly tree growing out of the boulder has all of the feel of like a symbol of the area, right? Like that I could totally imagine, I could totally imagine them choosing to build the rotunda here because there was a boulder with a little holly shoot growing out of it. Right. Um, (laughs) And being like, oh, look, this is like we've got the boulders. We've got the holly in one with sturdy little holly tree growing out of the cracks of a boulder. That's just cool. Right. That's awesome. I think, um, uh, you know, I think that's it's exactly it's like a symbol of the region. Let's build our little rotunda right here. Life Um, uh, finds a way. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's it's, I, I'm a big fan of that, and as I say, it probably was not. My guess is that, based upon the fact that they seem to have cut the um, the rock right, the inside of the boulder to make it flush to the walls, I would assume they would also have pruned the ivy and not let it grow all in the windows like that. But who knows? Maybe they would have. Maybe they would have. Maybe they would have liked the you know, the holly branches growing in through the windows of the, uh, of, of the rotunda there. Um, cause it would be kind of a nice effect and I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Sorry, I'm running into walls. Wouldn't be a bit surprised. It's also a defense system too. Cause, uh, last yeah. thing anyone would want to climb up and uh, over and through a bunch of prickly holly bushes. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if some of the bushes that were in here had been, planted then too like that i mean i think they would have i can totally see them leaning into the whole holly thing right yeah um as the theme of the region um definitely wouldn't want to walk barefoot around here yeah but yeah and having the having the the holly with the holly berries you know hanging over them there so even even if they're the top story with the dome had been completed and even if it were glassed over, you know, having the tree sticking in one of the, I, I do think that the very likely the windows on that upper story there would likely have been open. Um, you know, so having the holly peeking in, I think they, and they I think they might've found that a feature. Who knows? Probably but, not this other guy, but. No, yeah. but I, I did notice like looking up, that's one of the first effects I noticed. And it's a beautiful effect having all the branches come. Yeah, it is. I mean, the way in which the um, the trees have themselves come to dome the rotunda over again, right? The old dome has uh, fallen and is gone, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Look how much shade it's giving these guys. Right. Absolutely. Honestly, that was the thing that was missing from the other rotundas. They always seem to be in full sunlight under them. Right. Right. Yeah, true. Okay, cool. Well, next time we can head across the street and see that one. Right now yes. that we uh, have the milestone down here, we can come straight here and then go over to that much larger ruin uh, just across the way over there. Yeah, so we'll... Well, that looks like a city, um, which would make it, by the way, the first city that we've seen. Gwingris, as we saw, is not really a city. Um, yeah. Uh, and an this is, yeah, or just a hangout spot, Yeah. Um, basically. But, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so we will, we will see. There's some interesting things that I see from here that I'm looking including more rotundas but that I will be very interested to see when we get over there so alright next week next week we head what direction is that west-ish west by southwest next week yep look there's another cupola on that little hill up there down there but that I think is part of Mirabelle isn't it Looks like there's a path there, and we'll have to jump across boulders to get to it. All right. That will be all for this week. Thanks for joining us. Uh, this was every time we look at more of these and consider their um, uh, you know, their surroundings and get a better sense of Eregion, we get a better sense of what this Second Age culture might have been like, and it's very interesting. So thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us. I will see you guys again next week, November 30th. And uh, I will, uh, I'll, I look forward to you joining us then. So thanks, everybody. Bye now. Bye.